Omar Sharif Jr. is here to talk about his new memoir, A Tale of the Two Omars, and give us his spin on our LGBTQ issues. Hi, Omar. Hey, man. Thanks for having me on your show. So good to talk to you today. Tell us about your new memoir, A Tale of the Two Omars. It's called A Tale of Two Omars, and it's a story I sort of wanted to tell for a while for several reasons. Number one, sort of wanted it to be sort of cathartic and to get through some of the trauma that I lived through in my life that people might not have known about. And also, I sort of wanted to, I think sometimes I've been misunderstood as an activist. You know, activists are just people with stories. And so everyone who has a story and chooses to share it is an activist. And not all people who have stories have the same background or future agendas. And I sort of just wanted to sort of show that with the book. And so the two Omars represent, well, of course, myself and my grandfather, who was, uh, you know, an Oscar-nominated actor, but also the two Omars that were always inside of me, the public and the private, the, you know, the closeted and then the out one, the Jewish and the Muslim one, because I was raised between both faiths, the Canadian and the Egyptian, raised between both nationalities. So it really is a book of dichotomies and showing that, you know, we're all a lot more complicated than and we appear out in the world. And so how do we reconcile those identities? And what does that sense of trying to reconcile those identities, what does that bring us to do in our lives, make us hope to achieve with our lives? And that's sort of what the book's about. What was the initial inspiration for writing it? You know, my initial inspiration for writing the memoir was I had just gotten back from a trip, and I was invited to Saudi Arabia to participate in the first outdoor concert where men and women would be allowed to dance together in public. And when I returned from the trip and I saw men and women dancing together, David Geddes spinning, and I looked into the crowds and people were crying because they never anticipated that much change in their lifetime. They were never that optimistic for the future. And when I started receiving DMs over Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, and LGBTQ youth in the kingdom saying, we can't believe that an openly gay person was invited to the kingdom. We can't believe that that change might be on the horizon for us too, that we might not have to be scared in the future, that progress is maybe inevitable despite all the horrific mistakes that the regime is making, and not just mistakes, horrible crimes with, you know, torturing people, imprisoning activists, you know, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. They're like, it still brought us a lot of hope to see that maybe we're taking two steps forward, one step back. And when I got back to the United States from that trip, when I got to my house, there were two registered letters, and they were from nonprofit advocacy groups that I had worked with for close to a decade at this point, all cutting off all formal ties with me for having visited the kingdom. And I started to question myself. I was like, did I do the right thing in going, number one? And... Number two, why did I feel so optimistic, so hopeful? And what lessons can I extrapolate from that and lend to the broader sort of activist community and say, like, maybe we have to be a little more less all or nothing in our approach. Maybe we need to be a little more incremental and incrementalist. Maybe some change is better than no change. And I realized that my whole life has really set me up to believe that and my whole background and the way I was raised between sort of these multiple worlds and multiple identities that need to believe that, you know, 
we don't have to agree, we don't have to meet at the middle, we don't have to do that, but we do have to sit at the same table and work towards goals that are achievable and then keep pushing the envelope and keep demanding more. And I think that's what progress means. It doesn't mean getting everything all at once. It means slowly moving the needle until we're all included. What do you hope to accomplish with this memoir? So, you know, it's not a zero-sum game activism. That there are smaller wins that can be had, you know. Last night, I was re-watching Martin Luther King's mountaintop speech. And, you know, when he says, I've been to the mountaintop, and, and what he sees and the vision he sees, you know, the truth is, no matter how much we do and how much we're going to do as a community and how much we're going to achieve, there's always going to be more. There are so many things we still have to work on as an LGBTQ community right now. You know, there's still so much, so, so much bullying happening. There's still so much, so much suicide happening with our youth. There are still so many issues. We still can't pass legislation that should be passed right now. People are still being cast out of their homes and places of worship. Youth homelessness is a problem. People being forced into the street economy is a problem. The HIV AIDS is still a problem. There's always going to be more that we need to work on. So I can't imagine, you know, Dr. King standing in front of everyone at the mall saying, I've been to the mountaintop and I saw more mountaintops. Like, let's keep climbing. At a certain point, you have to be optimistic and hopeful because if you keep telling people that we're never going to get there, they're going to turn around and go home and watch television. And so that's sort of what I wanted to do with the book, show that, you know, we're going to get there, but we're going to have to keep climbing forever. And tiny victories are still victories to be celebrated. And we're going to have a lot of those victories along the way. What would you like to accomplish with your work? So, in the book, I touch on my multiple identities. You know, having a Jewish mother who's the daughter of Holocaust survivors. They went through Auschwitz and the death marches and the Warsaw Ghetto. You know, my father's side, I have this Academy Award-nominated actor, Omar Sharif, and my grandmother, who's probably more famous then my grandfather in the Arab world, she was known as the queen of the Arabic screen. And so I really have sort of this mixed background. And I find myself, because of that, especially because of the Jewish-Muslim interplay there, getting in trouble a lot when I speak about any side, quotations of side, of a conflict. At the end of the day, in a conflict, there are no sides. The people that suffer are people. It's never the politician. It's always people on the ground that end up suffering. So whether or not I participate and I act in Israeli series, or whether I'm, you know, promoting reconciliation between the Arab states and Israel, or whether I'm speaking back in Egypt to Arab audiences on LGBTQ issues, I'm getting a huge amount of blowback constantly from the different sides, depending on what I'm talking about. And for the longest time, I thought my job then, I guess, was to always be a chameleon. Just when I'm speaking to one audience, speak to that audience. When I'm speaking to this audience, speak to that audience. Always straddle the walls between these multiple worlds that I'm inhabiting. And now I've realized that that's not my job at all. And the book has helped me realize that. My job is not to straddle walls. It's to help break them down. And that's what art does. Art is the best thing we have to penetrate through walls. And so through storytelling and through filmmaking right now and through different series that I participate in, I only accept roles that really help tear down those walls 
And writing the book, I realized that actually that's what my grandparents did with their careers as well. You know, in Egypt, when my grandfather made the movie Funny Girl with Barbara Streisand, it was during the Six-Day War with Israel, and he had his citizenship revoked, similar to the way that, that I did when I came out as gay. He's also made multiple films about religious minorities in Egypt and the need for coexistence and, and to get along and to get together. Art is the best way of really changing hearts and minds, and I know that sounds like a cliche, but, you know, progressive values are best accomplished when, when we could help build empathy and understanding, and the best way to do that is to show it. What would you like to see happen for our LGBTQ community in the uh, Biden-Harris administration? I'm super excited because, as you know, I've been in exile from Egypt since I came out in 2012. The Muslim Brotherhood also brought up a motion to revoke my citizenship, and very sadly, I think that the moment I would go back to Egypt, I'd be arrested for inciting debauchery. The situation is only worsened, sadly. But I recently received a green card. Um, and I'm now a permanent resident of the United States as of just a couple weeks ago. And, I mean, I feel so comforted to know that I finally have a home again. The truth is that nowhere's perfect, though. And all homes are fixer-uppers. And so I'm under no illusion or pretense that this beautiful union that the United States is that represents so much good that we sometimes forget because we're blinded by some of the negative aspects to her, does represent so much good, but she is a fixer-upper. And so there are some stuff that, you know, needs to get worked on here. I think we've touched on some of those issues, you know, the rates of bullying and, and suicide remaining stagnant despite all we've achieved in marriage equality, which really is something that affects these people that could hope to get married one day, that aren't worried about surviving the street economy that they were cast into when they were shunned from their homes and families or, you know, kicked out of their places of worship. So there's so much that we need to work on here at home in the United States. But if there's one thing I would ask the Biden-Harris administration to do, it would be they're hugely influential in the United States with the IMF and the World Bank. And I would like to see LGBT equality, LGBTQ equality, I should say, be a necessary precondition for investment in other countries. I think we could do so much change around the world if we deny other countries in the developing world loans if they do not embrace or accept equal rights and human rights. So, for example, Uganda or Nigeria or Ghana right now, where there are horrible LGBTQ laws on the book being proposed or currently uh, activated, you want money for a school? Okay, but you're not going to get that money for those schools unless you respect the rights of LGBTQ people and they are safe to attend those schools. Another, say, Asia or in other places in Africa or Eastern Europe, if they want specific loans for, you know, health care, medical care, that's okay, but only if you'll also distribute HIV medication to LGBTQ populations and they have access to safe health care. Why are we giving loans to countries that are choosing not to give the appropriate level of service to all citizens? And so I think that's somewhere where the United States and the Biden administration could be particularly helpful by saying, World Bank, IMF, no more loans to countries that do not accept or embrace human and equal rights for its population. And that means to women, that means to LGBTQ people, that means to religious minorities, 
that's across the board. You know, could you imagine the United States giving a big loan through the World Bank uh, or the IMF to Afghanistan right now to open schools, even if the Taliban didn't allow women to attend schools? Why would we be helping build schools when women would not be allowed to go to them? So there's a way to protect minorities through these loans that are so desperately needed by some of these countries. And until they're willing to embrace and accept those equal and human rights, no loans for you. With LGBTQ teens already four times more likely to attempt suicide than their heterosexual peers at the facing bullying incidents, what advice would you have for these kids, especially in these times? Bullying is all fake. You know, the people that usually bully you are weaker. They're trying to sort of exert some sort of power imbalance. They're trying to make you feel bad. The only thing that's really true in life, and the only thing that you can really control, is what's happening in your head and in your heart. And if you could focus on that and know that you're just perfect in every single way, because that is how you were made, you should try to focus your attention on that and know that the bullies will, will get what's coming to them, too, one day down the line. Thankfully, today, we have amazing organizations and services like the Trevor Project, too. And so anyone who does need help and does need to speak to someone, you know, I encourage them with the utmost to find someone to speak to. As you'll read in my memoir, when I was being bullied in high school, I would walk home daily with thoughts of suicide running through my mind to the point where I would even go up to my, you know, condo balcony and stand there and just think about jumping. And as you'll see in my book, there are several reasons why I didn't ultimately. But it never really got easier, and the bullies never go away. So whether it's in school, whether it's government, eventually it was Egyptian media or government officials that were bullying me, they don't go away. But their bullying does eventually get weaker and weaker as we get more and more comfortable with who we are. So find the services and the people to speak to that will help you become more confident with who you are because you're perfect. And that's what's real. So focus what's going on inside you and not about what's happening all around you that you can't control. How can people get information about A Tale of Two Omars? So A Tale of Two Omars is out now. It's been out since October 5th. I know on multiple Amazon lists it's currently ranking at number one. So you could definitely look it up online and, and find ways to get your copy. It's available not only in print but also as an audiobook or on Audible. And I would encourage everyone not only to look online, but also to visit their local bookstores and support local businesses because we are so reliant on them and they are sort of being cannibalized in many ways by some of these larger online companies and retailers. So we got to spread the wealth. We've got to support our local businesses and our local bookstore owners. And yeah, so that's how I would suggest people go about finding more information. What other projects are you working on? So I right now have a television series that's the number one most watched series in the history of Israel. Um, it's called The Baker and the Beauty. And you might remember The Beauty and the Baker, which was an ABC show that was about two seasons ago. This is the original. The original was an Israeli show, and it's now started its third season, which I'm in. It's also been adapted now for the model's been adapted for Russia, for Brazil, for India. And it tells a story about two people coming together despite their different backgrounds and trying to make it work. One's a baker from a wonderful family, and the other's this, you know, billionaire grew up in the sort of eye of, of society, you know, really a sort of a social media star. Uh, and how do they make that work? 
the role that I play on it again in terms of straddling sort of these walls and then trying to break them down is I play a Lebanese man of Palestinian origin who's married to an Israeli Jew and we have a child together the surrogacy and these are all very taboo subjects in Israel and despite the fact that our characters disagree on so many things with regards to politics and religion at the end of the day we love each other because you know love is about people and different people with different opinions can and should be able to love each other and so I think it's truly an important story for the region it's an important story for Israel and I really hope it'll bring around some good, sort of shedding a light on these issues and helping to build that empathy and understanding that we were talking about before. Is there a question you wish people would ask you? I think there's a question I wish people wouldn't ask me. And I think the question I wish people wouldn't ask me is, you are so lucky to be raised privileged, to have Omar Sharif as a grandson. You must have had no problems or free ride through life. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to approach the book. I wanted to talk about my bullying. I wanted to talk about how hurtful it was to be exiled from my country and to have to leave when I came out as gay. I wanted to talk about the time when I was taken against my will and held against my will and raped in the Middle East and unable to leave that situation, which is going to surprise many and have my life threatened every time I tried to leave. No one has an easy life. Some have it easier, some have it harder, definitely. But we all have difficult situations that we go through that we have to learn from that help shape our futures and shape our ideas for our futures and shape what we want to bring into this world for future generations. And so I wish people wouldn't come to me with the assumption that life was always just so easy for me because it's not for anybody, and we need to acknowledge that. You know, that's the best way we could have some more empathy and understanding, too, is acknowledging that, of course, pain and trauma is a scale. But wherever we are on that scale, for us, is hurtful and painful and difficult and something that we have to overcome personally. So, you know, it's all relative. Pain is relative, but it's personal. And so if we could understand that everyone goes through difficult moments and difficult times, We'll have a better chance of understanding them and coming along with them on that journey of acceptance that they're trying to bring us back. Do you have a favorite quote or a mantra to get you through these difficult times? Probably one of the men I admire the most in the world was Nelson Mandela. And I mean, you could probably look up a million quotes that he said that, that would have each inspired me equally. But one of them that he said was, I never lose. I either win or I learn. And no matter what I've been going through in my life, I realize that even if I'm not winning, I'm learning. And I'm going to apply that lesson to the next thing that I do. You can count me down, but you can never count me out. And that's something I wish I could pass on to everyone through this book, too. Our stories keep going. I wrote a memoir, and I'm now 37 years old. There's a lot left to go. It isn't the end. It's only the beginning.